to kind of just get us thinking this morning, because I, I know a lot of times when we dive into a topic like we're getting into today, it's easy to think of other people and what they do and what they say. And, uh, so we're going to watch a video just to kind of get us thinking a little bit about just sometimes the, I don't know, the, the weird stuff, the dumb stuff that people say. So I pay $5 for a two-hour movie and then realize that my flight is only 90 minutes long. I mean, come on! So tired. I think I slept too much. Honey, the fridge is full. Babe, my coffee mug is too tall for the curing. What am I supposed to do with my leftover chicken fajitas? I'm hungry, but I'm not, like, hungry, hungry. I'm not hungry, hungry. I'm not hungry, hungry. I'm not hungry, hungry. I don't even know if I'm hungry. It's 11 o'clock, and I don't know whether to eat breakfast or lunch. I think I'm hungry. I hate watching Blu-rays on this TV. It looks too real. I'm not even hungry. My phone is 4G, but we don't have 4G coverage where we live, so it's the worst. This is the worst. No! No! Oh! I clicked restart instead of shut down. I have to wait for it to start back up again so I can shut it down. I hate it. I'm, like, too healthy. I never get to use any of my sick days. Closet full of clothes, nothing to wear. My white noise machine broke last night, and I didn't get any sleep. There's nothing to watch. There is nothing to watch. The bottom of my foot has been itching all day, but it tickles when I scratch it. I didn't finish brushing my teeth this morning. My battery died halfway through. I hate that. My hair smells like Starbucks. My hand smells like Starbucks. My iPad smells like Starbucks. That's the worst. Mm. <laughs> I lost it. Just shoot me. Oh, just shoot me. Put me out of my misery. Kill me now. Just shoot me in the face. Wasn't I just chewing gum? I don't remember spitting it out. This blanket doesn't have any sleeves. Yeah. Whining and complaining and griping and ah. Uh, how many of you guys know someone like that? Just whines and complains and gripes all the time. How many of you are that person? <laughs> yeah. I admit it. I confess. I'm a whiner. I'm a complainer. But, you know, being able to admit it is always a, like a good start, right? So when I knew a couple months ago I'd be preaching on this topic, I had this great plan. I was like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go on Facebook, on Gateway's page, and I'm going to ask this question, just like a community forum. I was going to ask, what kind of things do you tend to complain about? Because I thought it'd be a great idea. And then it struck me. I'm like, who's going to admit that, right? Who's going to like write, yeah, I'm a pathetic complainer on Facebook. It's like everyone's going to see right through. You're all going to know I'm going to use it in a sermon and none of you are going to say anything. So I I came up with a better plan. My plan was that I would just pay really close attention to you over the last few months when we had conversations and I would just write down the things you complained about and not tell you what I was doing. But I also discovered like there's several websites where people are actually encouraged to like just vent what they're upset about. And so based on some of the things I've heard, you know, probably not you individually say, but people like you over the last few months, like, so here are a lot of the things that I hear people complain about. And what's interesting to me is 
kind of the, the, the symmetry here. Like I, I, a lot of people complain about their jobs, but right now a lot of people complain about the fact that they don't have a job. So I find that's like really interesting. I'll talk to somebody and they'll complain about their job and then I'll talk to somebody and they'll be like, I wish I had a job to complain about. And then they complain about that. Um, people who, would, who complain about having too much to do. And again, there's something I hear a lot. How are you doing? Oh, I have way too much stuff to do. And then talking with people who say, I'm really bored, which is saying what? I don't have enough to do, right? Complain about the weather. Like what I found is some people, when it's raining, they complain about that, which I don't consider complaining. Some people, when, they, uh, when it's sunny, they complain about that, which I think is really weird. Um, people who complain about sports and I didn't like that game. I didn't like that call. I don't like that team. I don't like that player. Um, People like to complain about food service. It's a big one. Oh, it wasn't fast enough. It wasn't hot enough. It wasn't good enough. Oh, they messed up my non-decaf latte, whatever it is. They didn't didn't get the foam just right. Um, Customer service is something people complain about. Here's something I love that I've noticed this. Whenever you're talking with somebody and you bring up the words tech support, like people just like get all uptight and start shaking, right? Because apparently most of us, we don't have great tech support experiences. Um, have had some interesting conversations with, you know, women who, with moms who would complain about their kids and other women who complained that, you know, they, don't, they couldn't have kids or their kids aren't at home anymore and they wish they were at home and uh, complaining about their husbands. So here's what I found interesting. I have discussions with women who would complain about their husbands and I won't get any more specific than that. But then I would have discussions with women who would complain because they didn't have a husband. In fact, and I'm not making this up, I talked to one woman who said she, she complained that she's not married and that there's not even one decent prospect in all of Washougal, which, no, that's just another, uh, that's a whole nother sermon. Um, People complain their house is too small. People complain their house is too big to keep clean. Um, Men complained about the jobs, traffic, bad drivers, parking tickets, potholes, their cars too old. It kind of, we're deep that way as men. Um, Not enough money, not enough time. Um, I know I had one guy complain and quite frankly, again, I was with him. He really went on and on and on about how how he hates it when people put the toilet paper roll on the wrong way. Are you with me? It's always over and never under. Am I right? Do you know what I'm talking about? Toilet toilet, always over and always. So who agrees with me? Always over. All right. How many of you don't care? All right. We need to talk. All right. Because I don't, can't even go into the reasons right now why it's so wrong to do it under. It's like sanitary issues and all sorts of touch. Oh, but anyways. All right. And then there's like, I, and I hate to say this, but sometimes this, and maybe it's just part of the circles that I run in, but sometimes church attenders were like the worst. Um, the music was too loud. Right? The music was too soft. I was actually talking to somebody recently who was complaining the music was too loud. And I was like, that's weird because someone just complained it's too soft. And he thought I was making it up. He thought I was lying. He's like, nobody ever complained it's too soft. I'm like, oh, I need to introduce you to some of my friends. Right? Some people complain it's too loud. Some people complain it's too soft. Some people complain the songs are too old. Some people complain the songs are too new. You know, some people complain the sermon was too long. I actually had a guy the other day complain the sermon was too short. I'm not making it up because he listens to my sermons when he runs and he says they need to be a little bit longer because he's running farther now. So um, too many, too many illustrations, too many stories, um, not enough scripture, uh, sometimes too much 
scripture, uh, too much application. I've actually had a few people over the years tell me, I don't know why you can't just teach the Bible, just tell us what it says in the Greek and Hebrew and leave it alone. I don't know why you have to apply it and get in our faces and get all busy that way. I wish you didn't do that. Um, But really what it comes down to is I think a lot of us, we're just like, we're like Job. Now, granted, Job had, a le- he had some legitimate issues in his life when he wrote chapter 10, all right? He's going through some tough stuff. But I think for some of us, we've kind of lost the context of Job 10, and somehow we've adopted this as our, as our life verse. Um, Job says, I loathe my very life, and therefore I will give free reign. Or in some of your Bibles, it says, I will give full vent. And we just kind of like, yeah, I like that verse. I will give free reign to my complaint, and I will speak out of the bitterness of my soul. And we kind of realize, or we don't realize the fact that this is probably not a good life verse. Job was going through some tough stuff at the time. But, but we need to be people who have a different approach to life, because because otherwise we can become a little bit like the Israelites. And when I think about a group of complaining, whining, negative people, I just think of the Israelites because of all the people in the Bible, I think they're really number one. Um, Think about this. We talked last week, remember the Israelites were living in, in bondage to the Egyptians. They were enslaved. Their life was terrible. They had no freedom, no choices. They were living under oppression. Life was bad. And so they, they would cry out to God. Oh God, when are you going to hear our prayer? Oh God, when are you going to answer us and set us free? And it says that God heard their prayer. And so God raised up a guy named Moses. Remember, he's the burning bush and God says, I want you to go to Pharaoh. And so Moses reluctantly goes to Pharaoh and he says, God says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no. And Moses says, it's all right. And then there's the miraculous 10 plagues. And then Pharaoh says, all right, I guess you can go. So they pack up all their bags and they're leaving. And then Pharaoh goes, no, on second thought, no, I don't want you to go. And so now the army's after them. They're stuck between the Egyptian army and the Red Sea, remember? And, and the Red Sea parts and they walk on dry land. Okay. Don't miss this, all right? They're living the dream, all right? They're, they're like living the adventure. They're walking on dry land across the Red Sea. They get to the other side. The Egyptian army drowns. And now there they are heading toward the promised land. And um, when they get hungry, God gives them food from heaven. When they get thirsty, water comes out of a rock. Their, their clothes don't wear out. So again, they're just like, they're living the dream. They, they asked God for a blessing and they got the blessing and then some. And so what's their attitude? Are they like, do they wake up every morning and, you know, kind of get out of their tent and go, yeah, baby, I'm living the dream, you know, and just like, let's have a worship service. Let's praise God. It tells us this. In fact, this is this is what happened. It said in the desert, the whole community, that is Israel, the whole community, what? They grumbled against Moses and they complained to Aaron. And the Israelites said, if only we had died by the Lord's, can't you just hear the drama? By the Lord's hand in, in, in Egypt. And there we sat around, doesn't this sound great? We sat around pots of meat and we ate all the food we wanted. Yesterday was like a day of fasting here at Gateway and I'd never thought about preaching this last night. I was starving. And then I'm reading about pots of meat. And I'm like, oh, that sounds really good. Like pots of meat, and all the food we wanted. Now, of course, that's not what happened. But you know, that's what a negative complaining heart does. It tends to, tends to rewrite the past. And, and then it looks at its present and goes, this is terrible. And it says, you know, to Moses, you brought us out into this desert to, to starve this entire assembly to death. Now, 
This is what's so ironic to me. They're living the dream. They're living the miracle. And they're blind to it. They, they, don't, they don't see it. They're absolutely just inundated by blessings of God. And they don't enjoy it. And see, that's what a complaining heart does. A complaining negative heart blinds you to your blessings. You're surrounded by blessings and you don't see them. You don't get to enjoy them. Think about how tragic that is. That you are a blessed person, but you are not a happy person. Because you don't see those, those, those blessings in your life. It infects your heart. It infects the, the, the eyes of your heart, as scripture says. Your vision, your relationship with God, with each other. And for Israel, their complaining costs them in all sorts of ways. But two, I've mentioned in your notes, the first way that it, it really com- complicated their life was their complaining offended the heart of God. Think about it like for those of you that are parents, if you've ever had like a day, or maybe not you because your kids are not like this, but maybe you have friends that have kids, right? And, and, and uh, maybe they get up in the morning and they get everything ready for their kids for the day. And, you know, they wake up their kids with a song and, you know, softly turn up the light, right? And welcome to a new day, kids. And, uh, you know, you had breakfast for them and, and, you know, you're just singing to them, right? Because kids love that. And then you, you transport them to where they need to go and you give them the money they need to get through their day and give them their lunch and you pick them up and then you, you, know, you make a snack for them and you know what do you want to watch on TV and you help them with their homework and you bless them, bless them, bless them, bless them, roof over their head, food, clothing, all that kind of stuff. Now imagine that you do that, you serve your kids all day long like that, but imagine that all they do is, is gripe and, and complain and that's too hot and that's too cold and I don't like that color and I don't want to do that and I don't want to go there and imagine that they just do that. They complain and complain and complain. You're serving, serving, serving. Right? I know your kids have never done that, but you probably have friends who have. And right. So of course, how do you feel? How do you feel when that when your kids do that? Well, you probably feel a little bit angry, right? But mostly, you probably feel sad, right? You feel sad for your children because they are so blessed and they don't enjoy it. And that's it's really sad, isn't it? Because there's some things you can't do for your kids. Right? You, can, you can bless them, but you can't, you can't make them enjoy the blessing. And it's sad to watch people who are blessed and who should be thrilled and yet who are not. Now imagine how that is for God. Imagine as God serves us, loves us, sacrifices for us, plans for us, rescues us, forgives us, forgives us, forgives us, mercy and grace, and all we do is complain. I don't like this. I don't like that. It's too hot. It's too cold. Blah, 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 blah. Gripe and complain. How does God feel about that? Well, the Israelites, they're they're moving towards the promised land. They're blessed by God. He's leading them, feeding them, taking care of them. But in Numbers 11, again, it tells us this. It says, now the, the, the people complained about their hardship. And they, they griped about their hardship and they did it in the hearing of the Lord. And when he heard them, his anger was aroused and then, and then fire from the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. So their complaints were sinful and they angered God. And, and uh, you know, I think part of the, as I read this this week and thought a lot about this idea of complaining, I think a, part of, a big part of the reason that it really offends the heart of God is, is because when we complain, we're really taking life 
and turning it upside down. We're taking the purpose of life, the meaning of life, the center of life, and we're kind of turning it upside down. See, the, the problem really comes when we begin to think that we are the center of the story. And, and for many of us, we were, we were raised to think that we are the center of the story, that we're the plot of the story. For many of us, because we love our kids, we kind of raise them to think that they're the center of the story, that they're the center of the plot. And if that's true and they're not happy, then they have a legitimate right to complain and gripe and be upset, right? And and, and ultimately what happens is if we think that we're the center of the story, if we think we should be the center of the family and the family isn't working the way that we want, then we're going to complain to the family. If we go to work and we think like, I should be the the whole reason why this job exists, you know, then ultimately it's going to come out. We're going to complain to our boss. We're going to complain to the people around us. If, If we think our marriage, like I should be the center of the marriage and it's all about me, then we'll end up being bitter and complaining to our mate. Ultimately though, our focus is always complaining against God. Right? Ultimately, when we complain about our job, when we complain about our life, we complain about those things, God is, he can hear us. The God who blesses us, loves us, looks out for us, he can hear us and our complaint is ultimately against him. But see, the reality is when we read scripture from beginning to end, is that we are not the center of the story. We are not. God is the center of the story. In the beginning, God created God is the center. He is the Lord of Lords. He is the King of Kings. He is the creator. We exist to know him, right? We exist to love him. We exist to glorify him. And certainly we exist to enjoy him because he is an enjoyable God. But when we think that that we are the center of the story and that God exists to serve us, that's when things go south. That's when complaining starts. So and we see that in the lives of the Israelites. But another thing that we see in their lives is that their complaining had consequences. It, it, It carried ramifications. In Numbers 14, it says this, God is speaking. He says, how long will this wicked community, notice, grumble? How long will they grumble and complain and, and, and gripe against me, God says? I have heard the complaints of these grumbling Israelites. And so he, he says to Moses, tell them, as surely as I live, declares the Lord. And then here are some really hard words. I will do to you the very things I heard you say. What did he hear them say? God said, I'm going to lead you. I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to get you across that river. I'm going to give you your own property, give you the promised land. And they would always say, we're going to, you know, we're not. He's not going to deliver us. He's not going to protect us. He's not going to feed us. He's not, he's not, he's not. And they complained all the time. And so God finally said, I'm going to give you exactly what I heard you say. Think about that. Not one of you will enter the land, I swore with uplifted hand to make your home. See, God withheld the very blessing that he had intended for them. Isn't that crazy? I mean, because of their negative and complaining attitude, at some point God had to say, as much as I love you, I love you too much to just let you live like that and give you what you want. Because the results will be horrendous if I do. I mean, consider the fact that, that, that right now, there's something that God wants to give you. But your negative, complaining attitude is causing him to withhold his hand and his blessing. So because here's what I know. All right, I know this. If you want to, if you just decide you want to complain about something, you'll always find something to complain about, won't you? 
If you decide, you know what, I just want to complain about my marriage, I guarantee if you look for it, you're going to find something in your marriage to complain about. If you just decide, I want to, I want to complain about my job, you'll find something. I want to complain about my kids. It may take a while, but eventually you'll find something. I want to complain about my parents. I want to complain about my church. Just give a little thought. You'll come up with something, right? I want to complain about my grow group, the worship music, but the result is this. You'll find something, but it will so infect your heart. It will so infect your mind and your relationship with God and your spouse and your, and your church and your kids. And there are, there are consequences for our negative complaining. So what do we do about that? How do we restrain our complaining? Well, in your notes, I've, I've noted several things this morning. And the first one is this. You need to guard your mouth. Now, the, the sermon during the week always kind of evolves. And on Monday, I just have to tell you, point one was, point one on Monday was shut your mouth. And then my wife said, that's kind of harsh. And I was like, I know, but it's what I mean. Um, but anyways, I decided to make it something a little bit more biblical. Guard your mouth. Although I'm going to keep saying shut your mouth because it just sounds good. But here's the, here's the passage we get this from. Do everything. Now watch this. This is one of those passages where every word is packed, right? It's powerful. So, so here's what Paul says. Do. So he says, here's something I want you, you got to, don't just think about this. All right, here's something I want you to put into action. Do everything. So not just some things, all right? Not just, not some, but everything. Do everything that you're going to do without. So do everything, are you with me? Without. What do we do everything without? Without complaining or arguing. Do everything. So this is about, this is just self-discipline, all right? So here's what we like to do. We like to relabel our complaining. We like to tell ourselves, I'm not a complainer. I'm just a critical thinker, right? I mean, that's what I do, right? I'm not, I'm not, I'm not complaining. I'm just voicing my concern. You know, I'm, con- I'm, not, I'm not complaining. I'm actually sharing a prayer request. That's always my favorite. Uh, I just have the spiritual gift of telling it like it is. And, you know, so here's a better strategy, all right? Just call your complaining sin. Because that's what it is. It's ungratefulness, it's selfishness, it's immaturity. And as we read Philippians, it's unbiblical, it's unspiritual. He says, do everything, right? So when you're tempted to complain about something, whatever it is, right? Here's the thing to know. Whenever you start to think, not just like some things, but anything. I'm going to complain about my job, but my job, so no, Paul says, no, it's not. Don't complain about anything, right? So here, how can you know when complaining is bad? <laughs> when you're complaining, all right? It's just that simple, right? And so I, what, I, what I read here is, but Paul's just saying, just obey God and shut up, right? Just don't, just don't do it. And God stands ready to help. In Psalm 141, it says this, it, it, he's praying to God and he says, set a guard over my mouth, O Lord. So that would be great. God, Put this little guard there to keep me from saying stupid, negative, complaining things. The good news is God's done that for us. He says, keep watch over the door of my lips. So he says, here's the deal. God's given you a guard that can keep you from complaining. It's called your lips. And here's what I found. Just shut your mouth, right? And you can't complain, all right? Well, don't get near the keyboard or Facebook, but you can just, right, just don't complain. So imagine for a moment that you applied this to your life, like you actually, imagine that you applied this to your marriage. And the next time you were going to complain to your mate, imagine you just shut your mouth. Imagine the gates just closed and they stayed closed until you could move on to say something better. 
Imagine if you applied that, right, with, with your friends, with your friendships. That, that nothing negative and complaining ever came out of your mouth. Imagine what that might be like where you work or where you go to school or that group of people that you, that you hang around. So scripture says this, first of all, guard your mouth. That's just discipline. But then here's the second part. You need to fill your heart. Right, so guarding your mouth is a great start. Right, it's a, sometimes you just got to like do the first thing and have some discipline. But now let's get to the root of the problem, right? The root of the problem is deeper than the mouth. And in Luke six forty five, Jesus says this, for out of the overflow of a person's heart, his mouth speaks. So Jesus is saying this, if you want to know what's in the heart, just listen to what comes out of the mouth. And if you've ever heard somebody where something came out of their mouth that was very negative, like maybe that's not repeatable, and then they say like, oh, I'm sorry, I don't even know where that came from, right? Jesus would be like, I know where it came from. <laughs> came from your heart, right? Because that's where everything that comes out of your mouth comes from. It should be a clue that something's going on in your heart that isn't quite right. And that's why we have this in your notes, that the antidote to a complaining mouth is a grateful heart. It just is. Now, that doesn't mean you shouldn't have some discipline at first if you're struggling with it. But if you really, really, really want to solve the problem, the heart of the problem, you need to deal with your heart. In Psalm 9-1, the psalmist says this. He says, and it, it's so easy to just kind of read this and move on, but there's a kind of a great thing here. He says, I will give thanks to the Lord. And then here's what he says that's so great. With my, what? Whole heart, right? Not, I will give thanks to the Lord with half of my heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. Now, I'm not a mathematician, but I know this much. If I, if I thank God with my whole heart, okay, if 100% of my heart is filled with thanks, how much is left for complaining and negativity? Again, I'm not a mathematician, but I'm pretty sure it's nothing, okay? Like there's no, if your whole heart is filled with thanks to God, then there's nothing left for negativity. So what would that mean if I filled my heart with thankfulness and gratefulness. There would be no room for complaining and there would be no complaints coming out of my mouth. So he says, I want to give thanks to God with my whole heart. And he says this, I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. And that, that word recount, it has the idea of, of identifying and then, and then kind of hashing through that thing. So what it means is this, the psalmist says, I'm going to identify my blessings. I'm going to identify the great things that God does. And then I'm going to think about them and I'm going to consider them and I'm going to ponder them. I'm, I'm going to write them down. I'm going to come back to them tomorrow. I'm going to, I'm going to extract as much meaning from those good things as I possibly can. And there's, there's power in that. Um, sometimes, and I used to do it a lot more when I uh, first uh, got into pastoring and, and with my responsibilities, it's changed over the years, but I've done a fair amount of marital counseling over the years. So here's one of the things I know about marital counseling. When, when a couple comes and says, we'd really like some marriage counseling, here's what's never, ever happened to me. I've never had a couple come in and go, you know, well, we just wanted to talk about our marriage because everything is so awesome. 
we just had to tell someone, you know? I've never had an appointment like that, right? When I have an appointment, when somebody sets an appointment with me for marriage counseling, there's always a complaint, right? So here's the one thing I know. We can sit down, and if I ask them, so what's the problem? They'll have lots to tell me, which is why I've made it a practice to do something entirely different. And it does a couple of things. It's helpful, but it also pretty much ensures they'll never come back to me again for marital counseling. And that is we sit down and I'll always say like, not, you know, maybe I've heard a little bit about your problems or what they are, but here's what I want to, just to get the ball rolling, let's do this. And I'll always make sure I had a a pad of paper and a pencil because I want them to see me writing it down. And I'll always look at the husband and I'll say, let's start the discussion this way. Tell me something about your wife that you just really admire. And now, you know, for the husband, it'll always be like, uh, oh, wait a minute, that's, you know, I can just see on his face, wait, that's not what I came for. But, well, okay, I, you know, I'm a spiritual person, so he'll, he'll choke something out. And then I'll look at, I'll write it down, that's great. And then I'll ask the wife, so, you know, what about your husband do you appreciate? And so, you know, she'll usually have something. And then I'll look back at the husband, and I'll ask him, I'll say this. Okay, so now here's what I'd like you to share with me. Share with me something you really appreciate about your wife. So, you know, you can kind of see where that's going and then he'll tell me and then she'll tell me and he'll tell me. And here's what I found. I, if I just keep asking the question, they'll just keep answering the question. I've actually never had a couple where one of them said, you know what? I got nothing else. That's all I got. What I find is if you ask them, they can keep coming up with stuff that they admire and that they appreciate, but they're kind of waiting to get to the good stuff, right? But here's what I don't like. Here's what's not. Now, I understand that doesn't solve all their problems. It doesn't, you know, magically take everything away, but it does do something interesting. It does kind of reshape the conversation. It does, watch just the whole tension in the room begin to dissipate. It's always fun when couples start doing like, you know, here's something I, here's the reason I married her. Here's the reason I fell in love with him. When we start to remember some of those, some of those things, it doesn't solve all our problems, but it's so much of it is about focus. Because if your focus is on looking for stuff to complain about, you will ultimately fill your heart with stuff. Fill it, fill it, overflowing until it's coming out of everything that you say. You will be able to do that. On the other hand, if you're looking for the blessings, they're there. And you'll find them. The question is, what are you going to fill your heart with? What do you think will be best for you? What do you think will work best for your relationship with God, for your heart, for your marriage, for your kids? In Philippians, it tells us this. Paul has some great advice. He says, finally, brothers and sisters... Here's stuff to think about. Fill your heart with this stuff. What's true? You should think about what's true. What is noble? That's a good one. What's noble? Think about that. Whatever is right. Whatever is is pure. Whatever is is lovely. Here's some stuff. Whatever is admirable, right? Think about that. If anything is, is excellent, if anything is praiseworthy, think about such things. So the next time you're tempted to just kind of complain about your kids, Paul would say, well, I understand. They're not perfect. But, but what about the, is there anything admirable? Anything you admire about your son? Is there anything excellent about your daughter? Have you ever really thought about that? Have you thought, have you, have you praised God for that? Have you told them that? Is there anything praiseworthy? And here's what he says. These are the things that you should fill your mind with. Yeah, these are the things. Now, I'm not saying that you don't have to deal with the problems and you won't have to come back to them. But can you see how if you fill your mind with everything that's wrong with the other person, can you see how you're going to approach them differently than if you, than if you fill your mind with all the great things about that person? Do you think that you'll talk to them differently? 
Do you think that you're, you'll interact with them and try to solve problems differently? So how do I do that? How do I, how do I fill my heart with such things? Well, I, I fill my prayers with them. And again, I don't know about you, but I can get in this trap. Yesterday was a day of fasting and prayer. And so in the morning, I had like just a big stack of stuff to pray for. And I like to, and I like to get things done. So I get up in the morning and I got my list and I'm praying. I'm praying for some of you guys and the problems and the issues and all that stuff. And I got partway through, through the day and I kind of realized all I've really done so far is told God everything is wrong and what he needs to fix. And I thought, you know, I need to like thank God for some stuff. It's good to fill your prayers with thankfulness and gratefulness uh, for your blessings. I love to fill my journal with blessings. Now, again, I, I like to journal. I find that writing is very good for me. And here's what I've noticed. If I'm not careful, I can fill my journal with just negative stuff. I had this problem. He said this. She did this. He complained about this. This is what's wrong. But I found that when I, when I fill my journal with negative stuff, it doesn't produce anything good in my heart or in my head. But when I fill my journal with praise and thanksgiving, and I, I start to identify blessings I missed, and I get to enjoy them more. So fill your prayers with, the, with, with such things as, as Paul says. Fill your journal with good things. Fill your conversations. Imagine what the dinner table would be like if the conversations were centered around things that are admirable and excellent and praiseworthy. Fill your marriage with these good discussions. Fill, fill your, your, your dinner conversations and, and your grow groups with these things. Fill your heart with these things. And here's the third thing. Keep Jesus central. Now, so here's, here's what I'll tell you. On Monday, my sermon had three points. And, uh, and, and this was not one of them. And it was really on, on Wednesday afternoon as I was working through the sermon and I kind of going through all of it, and I realized there's really four points here. And so I took this out and I made it its own point. And I made this point three and point three got to be point four. And hopefully that's not confusing. But I just kind of, as I was thinking this all through, I was like, you know, this is a really, really, really central issue here. Keep Jesus central in your life. We already talked about that for a moment, but let me just explain to you for a minute how that works on a practical level. So I'll just admit to you that one of the, one of the real areas of struggle for me over the years in terms of complaining and, and, and negativity, oddly enough, has been the thing I'm doing right now. It's, been, it's, it's preaching. Of all the things that I have to do in my life, uh, this is probably, has, it has more pressure for me attached to it than, than anything else. And um, it, it, when, I, when I was a youth pastor, when I was an associate pastor and I had to preach every now and then, it, that was one thing and I really enjoyed it. But it was something about having a job where pretty much week in, week out, week in, week out, you finish one sermon and you go home and you start the next one where the pressure began to build. And, you know, for me, and I don't know if this makes sense, but um, a lot of times on the weekends, I preach Saturday night and, um, you know, preach Sunday morning. And my routine is then um, I go home and I have dinner with the family and um, I'll usually just kind of lay down for a half hour and decompress and think about things. And, and Oddly enough, sometimes the things that I, I should really be praising God for, I turn into negative things. And I struggled with this last week. Like I went home after the, after the sermon, had dinner, laid down for a moment, and all I could think of was this. Last weekend, all I could think of was, oh, the weekend went really well. <laughs> Worship was good, and I got tons of feedback on the sermon and lots of discussions with people. And, oh man, I, you know, 
I'm really concerned now because how am I going to top that next weekend? That's all I could think about was next weekend people are going to be going like, oh, I wasn't as good as last weekend. And so I kind of had that. That's what I do. I, I'm just really good at that. It's a spiritual gift. And so what I, what I would start to do is in my own life, here's how I would experience preaching. Uh, I would just put this pressure on myself like every weekend needs to be a home run, right? Every weekend when I step up, I just need to make sure that I hit it out of the ballpark and people are like, just like, they're almost like their jaws are going to drop to the floor and their hands are going to raise to the ceiling and it's going to be a life-changing event every weekend and then every weekend will just get even better than that. And every sermon has to be theologically sound, has to be nailed down. My theology's got to be perfect and every sermon has to be super deep in theology and it has to be like mind-blowingly practical. Like people just be like, wow, I never understood that and now it makes perfect sense to me. And everyone will go home and repent and change their lives and everything will be perfect. And, and usually here's what actually happens to me. I go home on Saturday night after church and I, I, I this, so this happens a lot for years. And I would sit down and my wife would say like, how was the sermon? And I would say things like, oh man, I didn't like the outline. Oh, I hate that outline. Nothing rhymed in my outline. It was terrible. And I don't like the way I told that story. And you know, when I made that one point, people were like, were scratching their heads. I actually think they were Googling, like trying to figure out what in the world is he talking about? And you know, I, I didn't have enough illustrations and I felt like the sermon wasn't deep enough. And you know, every Saturday night we'd have the same conversation and my wife would be like, we're Oh, did, were we at the same church? Did we even hear the same sermon? And, and here's what I realized after a few years. What I realized was this. The problem with my sermons was that I kept putting myself at the center of them. You know, all week long when I was preparing, I'd be like, do I like this? Do I don't like, you know, I don't like this. I like this passage. I don't like this. I like this point. I don't like this. And on Saturday nights when I'd be reviewing the sermon, I realized it was all about me. I liked that and I didn't like that. And I didn't like that outline and all this. So my wife, who's a very wise person, would always say to me, she'd ask questions like this. How was the sermon? I'd say, I didn't like the outline. And she would say, yeah, but was God honored? Well, yeah, but I didn't like that story. Well, did you preach the gospel? Well, yeah, but the thing is, I didn't like the way it ended. Yeah, but did you boldly preach the scripture of God? Did, did someone repent tonight? Did someone connect with the message tonight? And see, what's she doing? What she's really doing is she's saying, get yourself out of there. You're not the center of that. And she was right. And for me, as soon as I was able to get myself out of the center and go, this isn't about me. It's not about how I experience. It's not how I feel about the sermon and what I think about the sermon and whether people laughed or not. It's not about that. The point is, was God the center? Was Jesus preached? Was the gospel proclaimed? That's the point. See, when we put God back at where he belongs, that's when the joy comes back. That's when the blessing for me came back. See, I finally reached a point in my life where I thought, I'm going to probably be preaching for a long time. The question I have to ask myself is this, do I want to enjoy it or not? And I decided if I got to preach, I want to enjoy it. You know, I want to come up here and I want to enjoy what I'm doing. And what I can tell you is this, every time I take myself out of the equation and put God at the center, I always love doing this. Now imagine that that's what you did in your marriage. Imagine that you decided in your marriage, you know what? A lot of the reason, a lot of times the reason I complain and gripe is because it's all about me. I've put myself at the center. But what would I happen if I, if I took myself out of the center of my marriage and I put Jesus there? What would happen if I put Jesus at the center of my job? 
What would, I, what would it look like if I put Jesus at the center of my friendships at school? If I put Jesus at the center of my neighborhood and, and, and the things that I'm doing, what would that look like? And one of the things that it will do is it will bring back the joy of your salvation in walking with God. Galatians 2.20 has some, Paul, some great advice. He says this, I have been crucified with Christ, right? And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. See, what he's saying is this. Really, when, I'm, when, when Jesus is at the center of the story, then there's no reason for me to ever complain because it's not about me. It's about Jesus living in me. It's about the Jesus who purchased my life, who died for my sin. So now it's no longer about what do I want and what do I like. Now it's about what's Jesus' mission, right? What's Jesus' purpose for my life? What is Jesus' plan for my schedule tomorrow? What is Jesus' expectations for my life? What does he want to do in my relationships and in my finances and even in my problems? See, as long as I think that it's all about me, then I'm always going to feel like it's legitimate to complain. But when I, when I get hold of what, what Paul's saying here, then suddenly, what do I have to complain about? Because it's not about me anymore. My eternity has been purchased, man. No matter how tough this life is, I get heaven when it's all done. I get eternity with God. Put Jesus back at the center. And I got to stop preaching on that and get to the last point. And the last one is this. And this is really important. You need to be people who, who focus on blessing your world. So my question is this. How are you shaping your neighborhood? See, your words are shaping your neighborhood. Your words are shaping your marriage. Your words are shaping your kids. My question isn't, how are you influencing those things? My, my question is, it's not, are you, I'm sorry, it's not, are you influencing them? Because you are. It's how. How are you influencing the people around you? In Ephesians, it tells us this. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. That word unwholesome means rotten. It means worthless. Don't do that. But only, notice, only what is helpful. This is so big. Only what is helpful for building up other people according to their needs. And this is big. So that it may benefit those who listen. So what he says is, the words that come out of our mouth, we should always think first, will this bless them? Will this build them up? It's because complaining and negative talk never builds people up. It never strengthens people. It never de-stresses people, right? It just makes them negative and it makes them stressed. And so he says, you need, here's what you think about before words escape your mouth. Is this going to build them up? What do they need? So often we talk to people, we're just talking about whatever we want to talk about instead of asking the question, what do they need? So we decide that we're going to begin to bless people with our words, to build them up, to proclaim Jesus, right? Now, that's how you bless people. You talk about the gospel. You talk about how God has blessed you. You talk about what he's done for you. You talk about how he answered your prayer. You talk about the things you love about him. You talk about these things. You speak the truth and blessings in the love of God. In Philippians, it tells us this. Now, we started here, but let's read the whole passage, right? Let me give you the bigger context. Paul says this, do everything, right? Not just some things, but do everything without complaining and arguing. Why? Well, he gives us the why. Here's why. So that you may become blameless and pure. That's nice. Children of God without fault in a crooked, in a, in a depraved generation in which you shine 
Notice this. In which you shine like stars in the universe. What's he saying? He's saying, listen, you live in a dark world, right? You live in a hopeless world. You live in a world full of people who have, who have disconnected from the Savior, who don't understand the purpose of life, people who are struggling, people who are hurting, people who are kind of making their way through the darkness. Why would you add more darkness to darkness? Why would you? And that's all old, unwholesome, complaining words do. Here's a better idea. God did not create you to bring more darkness into darkness. God created you to bring light into the darkness. God created you so that you could show the way, that you could give people hope, that you could help them understand what truth is. How do we do that? We don't do it when we gripe. We don't do it when we complain. We do it when we say things that are helpful, when we think think things that are spiritual, when we guard our mouth from complaining. That's what he's saying. Then we can shine the greatness of God in our world. Sometimes we talk about the word oikos. Oikos is a Greek word that means household. When we say household today, we think of the people living in our house. But back in Jesus' day, when they said the word household or the word oikos, they were talking about the influential loving relationships. If you said, who's in your oikos? Who's in your household? They wouldn't just talk about the people in their home. They might say things like, well, I have a loving, influential relationship with my boss, so he's kind of in my household. And my parents who live in the next town, but we we have a loving, influential, they're they're in my household. And what the Bible says is that we all have an oikos. We all have a household. Why has God given you the oikos that he's given you? Because he wants you to shine like a bright star in a dark world. Let me ask you this question. Are you bringing light or darkness into your marriage? Are you bringing light or darkness with your words into your kids, into your home, into your, into your neighborhood, where you work? Which one are you? Are you the complainer, the grumbler, the one everyone avoids, the, the downer, the darkness? Or are you the bright light in your grow group and the people you spend time with? Why would we do this? We would do this because God loves people and there is hope for our world. And that hope is Jesus. How are people going to know that? They're going to know it through the things that you say. So do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe.